Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe, and worldwide. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by Mr. Rick Hess of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, before introducing M Mr. Hess, I would like to introduce Aaron Cadello, who's the president of Global Council USA, who will be briefly walking through some areas that we've been focusing on and that we recently published in a Global Council Insights piece by Miranda Lutz and I. Aaron? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Um, and thank you, Rick, for spending time with us today. Uh, as we at Global Council have looked out at the policy landscape post-COVID-19, we believe that education will be one of the key sectors most dramatically affected uh, by the pandemic. In the case of education, we've had millions of students in the U.S. and really around the world, students, parents, teachers, administrators, everybody involved in, in the education system having really their world kind of thrown upside down within the space of a couple of weeks when, when the lockdowns went into effect uh, in, in March. And really that process has sparked a national conversation about the parts of the old education system that make sense to keep and what, uh, what new elements to, to add when, uh, when schools return to what will probably, probably not be a, a, a quote normal situation in September, but will, but will take some time to, to transition to, to this new normal that we're all getting used to. Uh, and I can say as a parent of three school-aged children, we've, my wife and I have had the experience of having the learning of our kids happen sort of right in front of us or in our kitchen with our kids uh, doing online, online learning. And for many uh, parents whose kids are home from college and doing the same, uh, it's really been a, a time to, to step back and say, well, uh, what is it that we're, what is it that our, that our kids are learning and, and uh, uh, how should we, if, all, if at all, sort of change the system? So I'm going to speak for just a few minutes and then turn it over to Rick and, and really try to set the, set the table for some of the, some of the key themes that we've been looking at. And one really is competency-based education. And that is the notion of uh, having uh, students learn on their own timetable, uh, which again is better for a post-COVID world, and giving students credit for mastery of the material when achieved, as opposed to on a set timetable or thinking about sort of standardized tests. We've seen various colleges and universities move away from uh, from uh, from requiring, say, the S the ACT and SAT uh, and letter grade report cards, moving more towards digital assessments, which is probably something that is more useful in uh, adult education at the moment, uh, but but could be very uh, a very compelling uh, new new dynamic to watch for things like the healthcare profession, where we'll need thousands of additional trained professionals. And we'll need to do that in a way that is, is maybe a little bit different than one than what was done before. A second theme is career and technical education, uh, and the cost of the cost of higher education, given the given the ongoing recession and the and the large losses of jobs that we've seen. Uh, this will likely lead to an uh, increase in demand for uh, for career and technical education, especially for those that focus on essential employability skills. Uh, and this is an area that's enjoyed. By strong bipartisan support among federal lawmakers. And it does feel that the for-profit education industry in the US, which has been controversial for a long time, uh, has really sort of overhauled its operations quite considerably since the last downturn in 2000, 2008 and 2009, uh, in part due to the scrutiny that it is it has received from, uh, from, from policymakers. And so uh, it's our view at, at Global Council that the for-profit industry particularly those schools that are focused on career and technical education, actually have, uh, have quite a promising future if they can, they can kind of grab that opportunity and manage what will be 
uh, increased uh, scrutiny from, from regulators and policymakers uh, in, for that sector. A third theme is addressing the digital divide. Um, there are 21 million people in the US who lack digital access and only two thirds of those in rural America have home broadband connections. And that has really been highlighted by, the, by, by online learning uh, with, with some, some students not able to, uh, to access or access completely the, uh, the online options that their schools are providing for them. Uh, it's been interesting, this is a place where business and philanthropic organizations have, have stepped in um, to provide uh, provides students with, uh, with computers and access to the internet. And we think that will continue, but it's also a place where, where Congress and the administration uh, have already stepped in and will continue to do so. So Congress provided 13 billion for K to 12 schools to uh, improve their remote learning accessibility as part of the stimulus bills that were passed in recent months. And then the FCC, where these efforts went, started well before the pandemic, uh, has approved a $20 billion rural digital opportunity fund to attempt to narrow the digital divide. One last theme that I'll mention, and then we'll turn it over to Ben and, and Rick, is income share agreements. Uh, this is a, a system in which students, instead of, uh, instead of sort of paying for college in the traditional way, agree effectively to pay their university a percentage of their earnings after graduation. Uh, so these payments go go up when their income is high and down when their income is lower, uh, which means that students are not obligated to pay a set amount, even if they can't find the high paying job that they that they are seeking. Um, now, the institutions bear the brunt of this financial burden, uh, not the students if the if the earnings fall short of the of the projections. So there's obviously uh, there, there are upsides and downsides to this. But it is an interesting, uh, an interesting idea. Uh, it's mostly been promulgated by I, by Purdue University, which has been quite creative in a lot of ways and has used the ISA uh, in recent years. Uh, it would be interesting if uh, there are other schools that uh, that started to use it and it achieved sort of a critical mass that um, that could then be uh, an asset class that could potentially be securitized and in, in which institutional investors could participate. So. Again, those are laid out uh, further in the uh, insights piece that uh, that Ben and Miranda published earlier this week. If you'd like to get a copy of that, uh, please reach out to reach out to either of us. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Ben. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so as I mentioned, we're joined by Rick Hess of the American Enterprise Institute. He is the director of the Education Policy Studies at AEI. He's also the author of Education Week's popular blog, Rick Hess Straight Up, and serves as the executive editor of Education Next. He's written numerous books and has been published both in scholarly and popular outlets. And we really appreciate taking the time today. Rick, thanks for taking the time. Uh, sure. So I wanted to start off um, talking about actually something that Aaron mentioned earlier, which was the CBE. So you've actually written about various approaches that school systems will take to teaching in the fall. For example, uh, Cleveland has proposed something along the lines of competency-based education, while North Carolina recently passed legislation mandating that students, unless they were prior to the pandemic going to be held back, students must be pushed forward. Does the CBE stand to benefit from the uncertainty caused by COVID-19? And do you expect Cleveland's model to be you know, adopted by other school districts or by adult learning and retraining programs? Uh, you know, a lot of the answers are it depends. Um, clearly, when you haven't seen students for six months uh, at the K-12 or the post-sec level, um, you have very little information on where they are, how prepared they are, what they've learned. Uh, so a lot of the routines uh, that we're used to using, uh, which aren't great under any circumstances or even trickier, 
but see, you know, uh, competency-based uh, is still very much in its infancy. Yeah. Uh, doing it carefully and well requires a lot of expertise, a lot of discipline. Um, it makes a lot of sense where we're very clear on what the competencies are, <laughs> which is, right. you know, right. a truer of some technical fields, much less true of general education. Um, so, you know, Cleveland's effort to try to meet each student where they are conceptually makes a lot of sense, but it's something that schools have historically had an enormous difficulty doing uh, well. Um, and if it's done poorly, it could actually set CBE back, sure. just like I think this spring may, has, may have set, uh, you know, online learning back because it has created such a bad taste in one's mouth. Right. So um, I think there will be an appetite for CBE. It'll be a larger appetite in the short term. Whether that's a good thing for the industry uh, as a whole will, I think, depend on whether it is done competently and well. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I think those are all good points. And I think it really depends on, like you said, it completely depends on if it can be done well. And, and if especially because it's in its infancy, it's it's a it's there's a lot of a lot of issues that need to be sort of grappled with. So sort of mo moving into, you know, what also Aaron was talking about with stu students and, and schools and, and districts that are you know low income or very rural, they've, they've really struggled over the past few weeks mainly just because inconsistent access to internet and other digital platforms and, and the digital divide is something that was really an issue prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, but it has undoubtedly gotten worse. Do you, do you think that because, because we're still in the middle of this pandemic and do you think schools that are in wealthier areas will just simply decide to continue with remote learning and on the opposite end, if schools in low income areas, do you think that they will have no choice but to go back because they cannot continue to keep keep these kids that really don't have internet access uh, out of the classrooms and if they do return to in-person teaching do you expect you know backlashes from in the public or, or in the media um i mean i think you know there's a bunch of moving pieces in this puzzle um you know i think it's pretty clear that both for uh you know children in poverty but also for a lot of other kids the spring has been enormously unhealthy um mm -hmm. Even even in families where you have two parent households, where they have jobs that allow them uh, to supervise their kids regularly, where they have help, um, even in those cases, I think you see you, you've heard a lot of discontent uh, from parents with for good reason. Uh, only about even as the spring you know ground to a halt, only about twenty percent of schools. Uh, school systems were actually teaching in anything that you would recognize as reasonably rigorous online instruction. Four out of sure. five were not. One out of three school districts was doing nothing, required no teaching from its staff. Um, so look, so I think um, that there will be a general, I think there's a general sense on the part of a lot of parents um, that kids need to see their friends, need to be with peers, uh, that this is emotionally and socially unhealthy for them. You also have a lot of parents uh, distributed, I think, potentially concentrated more heavily in those same low-income communities who are concerned about the health effects of reopening school. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly, you know, particularly in communities that have felt more vulnerable to the spread of COVID. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got parents who need to work, and parents in low-income communities are less likely to be able to work from home. 
Um, so I think the question of digital access and educational efficacy is an important piece of it, but practically speaking, it's only going to be one part uh, of the larger calculation, which is also going to depend on, you know, other real considerations that public officials have to wrestle with. Sure, sure. So tra transitioning to, you know, higher education or, or student, student loan debt, how, how, do you, how do you think, you know, the pandemic will shape that conversation and sort of around the, the increasing burden of student loan debt and debt forgiveness? You know, you have progressives who, who argue for the complete erasing of, of all student loan debt. You have more moderates saying, you know, letting, give, easing, easing debt up to a certain amount. Do you, do you think alternatives such as, you know, income share agreements or, or so other alternatives to traditional student loan debt uh, pro, uh, programs will, will emerge as an option as more in, that more institutions will consider? Um, I think it's very possible. I mean, I think, you, you know, I mean, it's interesting in higher ed. There, there's a lot of pieces that may not come home to roost for 18 months or more. Sure. Uh, we have questions of students who did not complete course, you know, who completed courses virtually the spring pass fail. Uh, it's going to raise questions about whether they actually mastered, especially say in technical fields, uh, the information they needed. Uh, admissions processes, both uh, for obviously this year, but also next year, are obviously going to be, um, you know, altered. We see uh, the folks who've been pushing for uh, no test or test optional admissions uh, have been making uh, remarkable headway this spring. Uh, so there's a lot of questions about, uh, you know, up in the air about what does it mean to get a college degree? Uh, what's, you know, what are you actually paying for when you buy this college experience? Uh, how confident are we that uh, elite institutions are any better or even as good uh, as online institutions at teaching online. So I think there's a lot of questions which then go into the price equation. And I think one of the things you're seeing even from, you know, centrist uh, Republicans uh, in the House, not that there's a lot of them at this juncture, um, but one of the things you're hearing from them is, man, are we just supposed to keep the spigots open indefinitely? Yeah. Uh, so I think the idea of cut and dried forgiveness um, you know, would very much depend on whether the Democrats get unified control in the in November, sure. whether what happens to the filibuster, that kind of stuff. But I think um, what you will see is a bipartisan appetite for ISAs, uh, for uh, you, you know, for for thinking about ways to make the stuff more affordable. And what you might also see uh, is redoubled energy on licensure reform. Uh, given some of the questions about whether degrees and licenses uh, right now actually mean what they're supposed to mean. Sure. You, you, you did actually just mention, uh, you know, standardized testing such as the SAT and ACT. A lot of institutions announced that they've been waiving those requirements. Do you, do you think that that is something that will be here to stay? Uh, very possibly. I mean, it's gotten obviously caught up in debates um, about uh, you know, equity, about opportunity, uh, gotten caught up in questions uh, with, of a racial nature. Uh, and I think given the politics of higher ed, once you've put these on pause or temporarily done away with them, uh, there's not going to be a lot of people eager to fight the fight to bring them back into sure. an institution. Sure. Yeah, and so you, you've, you've actually written a couple articles recently about, you know, questioning whether those 
whether those elite colleges really can make the case that that people should you know pay the staggering amounts to, to attend their four-year university do, do you do you see you know career and technical education programs vocational schools really standing to benefit from from that increased skepticism into the four-year college and and do you think that for-profit institutions you know can if they can adequately provide retraining of vocation programs, they, they could really stand to capitalize and benefit here as well? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, what elite colleges, right, there's 4,000, depends how you count, four, 6,000 post-secondary institutions of various kinds. When we think about the colleges uh, that jump out in our mind, the, the, the Michigans and the UCs and the, you know, and the Berkeleys and the, um, you know, the Ivy League, uh, you know, these are, this is a sliver of the American higher ed landscape. Right. These are a couple hundred institutions. Uh, and what these guys have always sold is, you know, really three things. Um, one, they've sold, uh, you know, quote unquote, quality uh, education. Uh, a second thing they have sold is an experience. Um, and a third thing they've sold is a brand uh, which is going to open, you know, which is going to serve as kind of a golden ticket. It's going to open doors. It's going to pay a lot of money. Um, it turns out the third one, uh, Joe Fuller up in Harvard and I have tried to look at this, and we find that uh, if, you know, people who go to elite colleges are much more likely to graduate for a variety of reasons. Uh, but if you just look at folks who've received a degree, it turns out the premium on going to a selective college over an open admissions college is much smaller than you might imagine. Uh, four years out, out of a selective college, um, earnings, uh, the median earnings is about 52,000 a year. Uh, four years out of an open admissions college, it's about 45,000 a year, 46,000 wow. So, you know, it's maybe a 10, 12% premium, uh, which is a lot less than um, I think many would imagine. Sure. Uh, and, and then the other two, what, what, the, uh, what coronavirus has done is suddenly all of the wonderful experience uh, that you get of living in a college town and of uh, the lifelong friends and the, uh, the the parties and the clubs, that's all wiped away. That doesn't right. exist. Um, the, it turns out that for those of us who spent much time around teaching or going to elite colleges, uh, we know that the educational acumen is vastly oversold, uh, yep. that these are, many of the institutions are much more focused on helping faculty do good research Yep. than on a teaching experience. And so if you are not actually making friends and joining clubs, and if you're not getting mentored face-to-face -face by your professors, uh, the brand aspect uh, starts to look very different uh, than it has traditionally. And so, yeah, so I think what happens is coronavirus, to the extent that it lingers, it uh, dramatically dims uh, the, the the benefits of going to these really expensive places, which helps the other folks in the field, the for-profits, the CTEs, um, by definition. Right. And then to the extent that it causes people to take a second look or rethink some of the casual assumptions, um, I think it could have, um, you know, a, a long-term positive effect on uh, the less prestigious, um, you know, parts of the higher ed sector. Sure. And, and so you mentioned, you know, the elite universities, the Ivies, the Michigans, the, the UCs, those, those institutions probably won't change their models. But do you think, you know, the, the, the say the, the lesser, uh, the, the lesser, the, in the lower tier schools, schools like, you know, Southern New Hampshire University, they've established a hybrid model of 
of in-person and online education. Do you think besides, do you think schools that, that don't really hit match the, the elite brand, do you think they could sort of emulate the programs that SNHU have, have established by putting in in-person, you know, normal classrooms, but then also having a, a, a pretty large online presence? Yeah, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, Burke Smith, for instance, who was pushing this guy, you know, 15 decade or more ago with straighter line. He got ahead of the curve on this. Um, another way to think about because another way to think about this is for a lot of the impersonal um, just tick, uh, you know, check the box uh, education experiences, uh, 600 person intro economics classes, 800 person introduction to biology classes. Uh, there's no earthly upside of making yeah. any part of that uh, brick and mortar. You know, the experience is functionally online, even right. when you're showing up a class. Uh, so it's also, so it's not just a given institution uh, thinking about how to do this, but there's also questions about whether there's parts uh, that ought to be sloughed off altogether. Um, and so perhaps institutions, you know, to the extent that living on campus and being mentored is that there are um, that there are benefits to that. Uh, we, you know, it's not that we want some stuff virtual and people still go for four years, which takes them out of the workforce and is expensive. Um, it may be that there's a real appetite um, for institutions where you do uh, two years uh, in person, and yeah. the rest of and, and the rest of it you can be in the workforce doing your work virtually. So I think what's happening is this opens the door for a lot of that kind of redesign uh, sure. if anybody is up to the challenge. Sure, and, and so actually the reason I wanted to bring up you know, the, those online education platforms is so I know AEI, they held a conversation with Minerva founder and CEO Ben Nelson in January. Do you, do you think higher ed education institutions will you know, turn to a company like Minerva to build out their online platforms or do you think that they'll just try to stick to it in-house and and build it out themselves? Um, I mean, I certainly would hope that they would look outside. I mean, one of the things we've seen school districts and colleges struggle with this spring is they just don't have the acumen uh, to do this well. They don't, they're not used to doing it. It's not their sweet spot. Um, now the trick is between, uh, you know, in the, in the public, for public institutions, procurement regs, uh, you know, FOIA processes, design practices, um, can create such uh, an extended window that it wasn't feasible to do it this spring, and it may not even be feasible for the fall. Um, but I think I think most of them are aware of their own internal limitations, and will be looking longer term. Uh, the other issue is kind of the culture and the degree to which institutions uh, can get buy-in um, from from faculty, from uh, you, you know from you know, so it depends, again, on different kinds of institutions, community college, uh, if you can get the buy-in from the local business community and state government, you're off to the races. So I'd sure. expect community colleges to move on this a lot faster. Uh, when you have institutions where faculty have uh, tenure and a larger voice in institutional governance, um, getting them comfortable with this becomes much more challenging. Sure. Yeah. Do you, do you anticipate that as being one of the biggest challenges, you know, you know, cause I agree. I think the, you know, the, the tenured faculty member at a, at a small, at a small school is, is, is not going to be, you know, pretty gung ho about, about trying to adopt this type of model. Do you think that is where the biggest challenge lies? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I mean, I th- when you think about the institutions that are most at risk, uh, it's colleges uh, which are selling that experience, which don't have the, the, the research funding and the deep pockets of the elites. Um, and, you know, and we're, fa- we're teaching is very much kind of the core of what faculty do. Uh, these are the places that desperately need to get their costs under control that are being, uh, you know, most directly threatened um, by enrollment decreases. But those are also the places where faculty are probably going to be most resistant are probably going to, in some cases correctly, see this stuff as a threat and, uh, you know, and where they might wind up, you know, choosing to take the ship down rather than uh, consider bringing this stuff, rather than, uh, you know, exceeded this stuff coming in. Sure. I want to sort of transition into, you know, the, the political aspect of the national role here. I mean, so the Higher Education Act is supposed to be reauthorized every five years. It hasn't since 2008. Do, do you do you see, you know, the, the COVID pandemic as, you know, maybe an impetus for the act's reauthorization? And, and if so, you know, what provisions are you looking for or looking to expect it to be added or, or changed? No, I mean, I don't think anything gets done between now and the end of this Congress. Right. Uh, Senator Alexander had, you know, was making progress on a bill. Right. Um, which I wasn't personally crazy about, so... <laughs> Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, it, you never know what's going to come out uh, next. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think anything happens before January. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to right now, given where everybody is, it's hard to see major, major legislation yep. uh, on education coming out. If, say, the Republicans retain the Senate or retain the White House, though, you, you know, you never know. Uh, if Democrats get unified control, um, especially, you know, you know, we'll see what happens with the filibuster. Uh, then you could imagine uh, that there is enough energy on the left that they would probably push something through. Sure. Uh, but in that case, I think it would be a highly partisan bill, and it would raise a lot of questions about, you know, you, it, it could very much politicize the federal role in education um, the same way the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, would would. would with ramifications similar to those the Affordable Care Act had for the way we debated health care uh, at the sure. national level. So do you, th- you, do you think there's like any common ground that you that you would see, you know, in January between Democrat, Democrats and Republicans? I mean, obviously, it depends very much on the Senate and the House and obviously who's in, in the Oval Office. But I do, do you see any areas where there, there really could be common ground and you could see some serious legislation be moved forward? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you know, I mean, partly, I mean, both parties are in such a state right now that uh, that, that that common ground is, you know, is is a stranger phrase uh, than right. it used to be. But yeah, you know, I mean, you know, there's general agreement uh, that way too many students don't complete, uh, that we need better data on reporting on this, um, both institutionally and potentially at the program level. Uh, there's less agreement on whether you want to uh, make federal aid contingent on completion in any sense or use it to score. It's kind of the old no child left behind conversation. Sure. Uh, there's concerns that you would wind up with, uh, manip- with data manipulation or with uh, institutions, uh, you know, changing admissions policies or changing uh, or making it easier to graduate in order to get on the good side uh, of the regs. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of room there. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of room, um, you know, around CTE and around community college. There's a lot of appetite for investment and support in that. 
Uh, I think there's a broad agreement uh, that you want to make college uh, more affordable, um, especially for you know folk you, you, you know um, college goers in poverty or, or, or you know for you know for middle class households. Sure. Uh, but there's some disagreement over how severe the problem is. There's disagreement over how do you structure those incentives. Um, but you know, I think something which relates transparency and potentially elements of accountability to increased money uh, and some degree of uh, you know trying to make things easier, at least for hard-hit students. Uh, you know, you could build a bill around that. But it would feel unsatisfying, I think, to the Democrats. They would want a lot more than that. And on the on, on the hard right, I think there's some concerns that that gets Washington too far into it, and it's just not clear, um, you, you know, how how you put together, you know, the necessary votes building on that. Right. So sort of last question here, you know, obviously, obviously this is a very stressful time, but amidst all the turmoil, what, what are you look, what are you most excited about as you look forward for education? Uh, you know, I mean, I think, you, you know, what, what's, you, you know, all the things that trouble America, uh, you know, it's been, you know, could potentially be solved by the things that are best about America. Um, America is, you, you know, you know, a, you know, two century plus experiment in opportunity and reinvention uh, and problem solving. And I think that's, you know, it, you know, and I think education is right at, you know, right at the taproot of that, that we, you know, so much of what has powered our economy has been ways to attract talent from around the globe, uh, to put people in a position to succeed, to open doors. And what I'm excited about is that I think we have a lot of tools to do that more powerfully uh, going forward than we ever have in the past. We have um, a labor, we have a labor force uh, that can be used in different ways to educate um, over a variety of, of networks. We have technological tools that are, you know, mind bending. Uh, we have the opportunity to redesign and reconfigure how we put education together. Um, you know, so I think, you know, the question is, are we, can we find public and private partnerships? Can we find investors? Can we find the educators um, that are able to figure out how to make these things work? And that's, you know, I'm per I, I think we can, and I'm, I find that enormously exciting. Yeah, well, I, I think it's important to end on a, on a positive note. So we will end with that. Uh, thank you very much again for taking the time to speak to us. I think this was extremely helpful and, and, and really interesting to hear from you. So with that, I'll say thank you to everyone who joined. And uh, thanks again, Mr. Hess. For more hey, my insights, Take care. blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.